You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. Good afternoon and good day, and uh, thank you for joining us again today on the TK Show, uh, where we aim to have a policy-centric but personal conversations about the state of South Africa and the wider African continent. And in today's guest, Miss, but soon to be Dr. Odile Mackett, I think will really fit the the profile of what we're trying to do here on the TK show in having these policy centric but personal conversations. So I think I just want to kindly just welcome Odile Mackett. Welcome to, to my show. Thanks, TK. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, you'll probably notice uh, that we both uh, work for the same institution. I'm, I'm you to the Vet School of Governance. Odile has also, I think, one year, two year anniversary at the School of Governance? Five, actually. Wow. <laughs> She's you're, yeah. no, you're, you're a veteran. You're a veteran. You're a veteran. Yeah, she she really is. I, I'll say like one of the the bright thinkers at the the school of governance with a very interesting area and focus, which I think we'll we'll probably tease on a bit. But I think Odile, maybe just for you to give uh, our viewers and also our listeners just a brief profile of, of of about yourself, your work, who you are, and the like. Okay. Um. Thanks. So yeah, I'm a lecturer in the Vet School of Governance. Um, I've been there for the last five years. Um, before that, I worked in UNISA's Department of Economics. Um, I was there for almost three years. Um, so, yeah, it's been an interesting journey, you know, in terms of disciplinary focus of the different schools or departments. So at UNISA, it was obviously like a one discipline department in the School of Governance where sort of multidisciplinary. So you engage with colleagues, you know, that you wouldn't necessarily engage if you were like just in an economics department. So it's quite interesting. Um, I think it's also there that I've sort of, you know, found like my research focus. I don't think, you know, I've been like super comfortable with economics as a discipline. Um, And I think being in the multidisciplinary space has sort of allowed me, given me the space, you know, to sort of ask questions about, you know, how economists view the world and how other disciplines or people in other disciplines could also, um, you know, contribute to, you know, answering these complex um, societal questions that we have. Um, so, yeah, lecturer, I'm also a researcher, I suppose, that's part of the job description. Um, so, my research focuses mainly on labor economics, um, although specifically on women in the labor market. Um, although my master's focused on women, but then also I also added on like a youth angle. So I looked at gender differences in labor market outcomes, uh, labor market outcomes being like, you know, what are the determinants of being employed, unemployed and not economically okay. active? Um, so I looked at the differences between men and women, and then also the differences between the older cohort of the population and then the younger cohort of the population. Um, For my PhD, um, I still kept the labor focus, but what I did was I framed my PhD around the ILO's decent work index or their decent work agenda. Um, And it was just like a bit of a critique of the decent work agenda to show that it's not sufficiently gendered or it's gender neutral. In other words, it doesn't consider the circumstances under which women work in the labor market. And in doing so, if something is gender neutral, um, it often tends to exacerbate existing inequalities between men and women. Um, So yeah, I did that using time use. Um, 
looking specifically at um, unpaid reproductive labor um, and the impact that has on the quality of work someone has. So un unpaid reproductive labor being like, you know, looking after children, cooking, cleaning, looking after the elderly in your home. So whatever you do, that is sort of caring labor, but not in exchange for money. So um, mm, not in the okay. sense of like being a domestic worker. In that case, we'll just say that you are wage laborer because you get a wage for your work. Um, but in terms of unpaid reproductive labor, um, it's often women who tend to do that type of labor in the household. Um, and basically, I asked the question, you know, um, what effect does the amount of unpaid reproductive labor someone does have on the quality of their wage work? Um, and so, yeah. That's my research focused. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Um, I, I've also now come to find that there are not a lot of people doing um, research in like gender economics um, in South Africa. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about that um, in a while. Um, but some of my other research interests also uh, relate to social security because I think that has important implications for the labor market. Um, and then, yeah, that's sort of like about it. That's the main things about me. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a mouthful though it's, it's a lot of work and i think maybe I'll, I'll just maybe touch on this to say thank you again for just joining us and for those of you guys that are joining us now we are and i'll say are because i think we'll probably do a lot of departures and take a lot of the roots on this we're supposed to be we're looking at why is economic development thinking and planning and execution so hard in south africa and i like the overview you gave because it's not something we readily think about uh, uh, if anything one would argue that listen we probably have to think about this a bit more because of covid because i think pre-covid you know life about economics is just usually we just know supply demand and we move on from there and i always ask people who do economics and end up in academia but why you guys can be private bankers you could be working for the world bank you could be making real money why 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 economics and academia <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, it's interesting that you asked me that because it's a, a question that I grappled with recently. Um, as an academic, you'll know, like, you know, it's not an easy place to work. Um, for a lot of us, you know, like, we are, like, first-generation academics in our families. Um, and so, you know, like, it's a whole new terrain um, for us. And, I mean, I don't need to go into the lack of transformation in academic institutions, you know, that sort of adds to... I suppose the trauma, because people are now also talking about, you know, experiencing racism and sexism as like traumatic experiences. And I don't think we see it as such. Um, and so, you know, it takes a lot of mental and emotional energy yeah. to be <laughs> in these spaces. Um, so, you know, there was this moment at the beginning of the year where I decided I had just had enough. I don't even want academia anymore. I am out of here. Um, but you know, when I say that, you need to bear in mind that being an academic is like my dream job. It's like my wow. dream, dream job. So it's like, you know, if you walk away from your dream job, you know, where do you go to? Mm -hmm. So what I did was, you know, I went on this little journey of mine where I thought, okay, I'm going to decide, you know, what else I can do. Um, I sort of know I don't want to work for the private sector. You know, I don't want to be at the behest of clients, you know, and work like crazy hours. I, I suppose money is also just not like a good enough motivator for me. Um, but what I did was I actually started speaking to people who do other jobs. So mm -hmm. I spoke to people who have worked for NGOs. I spoke to someone at the Reserve Bank. Um, I spoke to... 
I spoke to, I didn't speak to a private sector person. I spoke to people who like work in government. Um, you know, I spoke to someone at the World Bank, for instance, and I basically just asked them, you know, like, like, what do you do, you know, like every day? Because I wanted to get an idea of, you know, um, where do I want to go and what am I going to get myself yeah. into when I go? Um, and, you know, the more I, I mean, it sounded really interesting what people do out there, but the more I listened to people talk, the more I realized how much I would be leaving behind, you know, if I left. Mm -hmm. And one of the main things for me was like academic freedom. Um, so not just having the freedom to say what you need to say, you know, without having to worry about, you know, you are critiquing your own institution, so you might get fired or whatever, but also just in deciding, you know, what is important and what I want to write about. Um, and I think this is especially important, like for an area in which I work, um, there's this one podcast, it's Therapy for Black Girls, you know, where this lady talks about, um, you know, she's a psychologist and she actually does research on, you know, racism and the experiences of black people. Um, and she says that, you know, she established a center. I don't know what the center's name is. It's in America, you know, these research centers. Um, and she said that, you know, the most difficult thing is that to get funding is because the people who have the money are often not interested in exploring these types of issues, right? So issues about racism, who cares about that? Only black people, mm. right? Guess what? <laughs> black people are not the people who have the money. So um, she, so basically, I mean, it's an isolated example. I'm sure there are many like that. But I feel like, you know, I might run into the same trap elsewhere, you know, because the mm. things I really care about are the things that affect marginalized societies. Um, you know, and the people who have money to fund those sort of things are not interested in that necessarily. So just like the, the academic freedom, you know, to, to do what I need to do, you know, to start the projects I want to start, um, you know, not to be held ransom by clients, you know, who want something to sound a certain type of way. And also, I suppose the teaching, I must say, I don't enjoy the teaching that much, although I did initially, <laughs> <laughs> I did initially join academia because, you know, I thought I love teaching. Um, and I suppose maybe it's like our students. Um, I mean, they're interesting, right? I'm sure, I'm sure you, you know by now that we have an interesting set of students. You know, it's not your usual sort of first year, wide-eyed, yeah. you know, who's here to find out what's new and what I'm going to learn. Um, but it's people who are like really demanding, um, you know, people who are, many of them are high profile people yeah. in their jobs. Um, so it's a really interesting dynamic, you know, especially like a young person and a person of color, you know, um, teaching students like that. Um, and so I do enjoy the teaching, but it's not my favorite. Um, I enjoy is, the... we, fall in and out of, we all fall in and out of love of tea. Yeah. I think I sometimes have seasons where you're like, I wish I was not doing this. And then you're like, I can't wait for this module. So it's a, I think yes. I always say it's like seasonal. It always goes seasonally. I think. Yes, it's up and down. Um, <laughs> I do enjoy the supervision though. Um, I mean, I find that really interesting, you know, like having the one-on-one -on -one, um, with the student that you don't get like in the bigger classroom. Um, but also, you know, to be honest, like the pay is okay. I know as academics, we never talk about that, you know, because <laughs> academics don't do things for the money. You know, we do things for the, 
whatever good of the world or whatever but i mean honestly like full professors get paid like close to a million rand you know some of them probably go over that mark so it's not like you know we're struggling um i i find this notion of the struggling academic interesting because really no academic is struggling you know like we are probably upper middle class most of us if we're being honest so yeah i think yes i think given if we had to compare skills you know so take what I'm earning now, for instance, and what I would earn had I been working, you know, for, I don't know, the World Bank or the IMF or whatever. Yes, you know, it's like, okay, this is a pittance. But I mean, (laughs) yes, but I I mean, in the bigger scheme of things, you know, and Mm -hmm. just the other benefits that come along, um, you know, with the job. um, Yeah, I think it it just can't be about pay, you know, there's got to be other things that are also important to you. So, yeah. Well, I think it's interesting that you link that the issue of pay because it was for some reason uh, when I remember doing economics, it was always this supply and demand thing, and the rational being always supposedly we're supposed to maximize on what you're able to do. But maybe that that's actually another starting point of can you just demystify economics for us? Because you know, economics is one of those. It's a bizarre subject in that it's, uh, I think from, I remember from Economics 1, they tell you that, listen, economists are probably the oddest people in the world. They never agree with one another. And you're just thinking it's a promo. Yet you tend to find that they've got such a huge impact on policy and how, I mean, the state of where government is. And even look, the highest prize you can get as an academic is the Nobel Economics Prize, or which is so, it's, I find it a very mysterious subject, important, but you're also seeing that there's shifts within economics. So how do you demystify this subject of economics for us? Yeah, I mean, it's very simple. You know, it's supply and demand. There's a graph. <laughs> you get them to match up and then, boom, the world is okay. Um, I think that is, like, the biggest problem with economics. Um, and also, like, in the way we teach it. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have agreed that that is a problem. So viewing economics through this the demand, supply, um, you know, maximizing utility and people being rational and all that. Because um, people are not rational. So you can't put yeah. people into a model and, you know, predict how they are going to behave. Um, you know, there's this uh, one podcast that I was listening to a while ago. I think it's from the Stanford Business School. Um, and they basically um, interview their professors who specialize in communication. Um, And, you know, one thing that all of them say is obviously, like, know your audience. But another thing they also say (laughs) is that, um, you know, people don't make rational decisions. People make emotional decisions. And so they say when you communicate with people, you got to communicate with their emotions, right, rather than their rationality. Because we hardly ever sit down and say, um, you know, pros and cons, and this is what I'm going to go with, right? <laughs> so maybe we do that with big decisions every now and then, but like every day on a day-to-day, you know, I feel hungry, I drive past McDonald's, I'm going to eat it. I'm not weighing up, you know, the fact that my doctor said, you know, I have high blood pressure or whatever, so, you know, I should probably turn into pick and pay and get the green salad. You know, <laughs> I'm feeling hungry, so that's where I'm going. So, like, people are not rational, um, and I think that is that is like the the main, main problem with economics and also with economists themselves, you know, is that, um, you know, I was on a webinar the other day where, or conversation rather, where, you know, someone made the comment, 
where they said it was about diversity in economics and they made the comment where they said, you know, a lot of people in the industry who work as economists are not necessarily called economists. You know, they'll be, they ha they'll have all sorts of different titles, you know, analysts, mm. this, that, and the other. But, you know, those people who are like, you know, running models and whatever, you know, like you'll find that, you know, they're not really diversified. And I basically said, you know, like economics as a social science means that we're looking at more than just people who are running models every day. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that is like the crux of the thing, you know, is that economics is a social science and too many of us are treating it as a natural science, um, you know, where we click a button and then, you know, there are all sure. the answers. I mean, we've been having the answers for years, right? And yet we still have poverty and inequality and unemployment in our country, despite the fact that we have all these nice policies that have all the answers to our problems. So, yeah, yeah just this like economics being a social science thing and also it being like a silo. So um, I, I studied, uh, my undergrad is a BA in politics and economics. Um, so I didn't go like, you know, the conventional BCom route. But if you go the conventional BCom route, students don't tend to do like other social science subjects, you know, like mm -hmm. politics or development studies or whatever. And if they do it, maybe it's just like a semester. Um, but I think that, you know, a lot of people are missing that social science element in how they think about the economy. Um, and I find that you know just having done politics and economics together i feel like it's i feel like i have like a little bit of a different view you know of how i see the economy i don't just see it as a place with numbers i also see it as a place with people um mm. you know where we have different political parties you know there are different interest groups um and those different interest groups have access to different types of resources and that's when we start talking about the economy you know if i speak to um our colleague prof Antoni, he does security right so he made the example of you know if isis is at the border by mozambique we need to send the SANDF to be there that's when we start talking about the economy how much is that going to cost us but mm -hmm. isis um, we don't see ISIS as an economic issue, right? We see ISIS as a as a as a security issue. We may see it as a political issue in how you know the different administrations are going to work together. But sometimes we're just missing the little economic issue. Um, and so, just like economics being like taught in a silo as well, I think is one of the problems. And then, of course, there are the people who go over the sea to get taught economics, which is, <laughs> which is another problem. But okay. um, yeah, we'll, we can talk about that if you want to. No, no, I, I do find it fascinating that at least you're able to marry two, two basic ideas, which traditionally is what you're supposed to do. Because if I'm not mistaken, politics is, I think economics is referred to as the queen of the social sciences or... I think that's uh, that's why it's referred to. But those, if you study traditional economic thought, is that you could you could never do like Marx. Ne Marx never said I studied pure economics. It was politics with economics. So you can never really divorce the two. And I've always just wondered though, for, from you guys, because I'm sure you you know South African policies. You've said for some reason we always. I think the the, the latest hit at the moment is uh, Miss Mariana Mazekoto. I think she's the latest it within South African government speak. And I think President Tabumbeke used to have the Harvard Review. Basically, I think it's a Harvard Review economist, guys. So I've always found it interesting that everybody knows economics is important, but like you say, we never really under, we never do an investigation to say, listen, what underlies the thinking behind it? And that's why I've always found economics in South Africa fascinating that it's like almost as though we, 
if you do economics one in South Africa and if you do economics in the US, it's almost like the, the premise, we never shift the premise to say, what is South Africa's uh, standing on it? So that's why I always ask people like you who are doing economics, do you, do you find that it's uh, in South I don't want to use the word transformation because I think we use it a lot in South Africa, but do you find that we need, we need to, I think decoupling, I think that's a, a more classical term to use. Do you think that we need to maybe revisit how economists or people working in the economy assist public policy makers in South African government? Yeah. Um, I think for me, it's more a question of like who. So, um, hmm. you know, like I said, you know, there are people who go overseas. And um, it's funny, I thought about this the other day. You know, I never used to read the newspaper when I was a teenager. But for some reason, I read this article. You know, my father used to buy the city press on a Sunday. Um, and this was like during Tom Becky's era. And there was an opinion piece about... Um, you know, obviously, at that time, there was a lot of people who were in exile who studied overseas, and then, you know, they came back and they filled all these um, important posts. Um, and then, of course, there were all these other scholarships that came out of it, right? Like, the yeah. is it the Commonwealth Scholarship and yeah. the Rhodes Scholarship, you know, the stuff that you can use to sort of go overseas and then come back and, you know, improve, improve the country. Um, and this opinion piece was basically about the usefulness of doing that. So what is the point of sending someone to England um, to go and be taught about how to deal with economic problems in England and then sending mm. them back to South Africa to come and deal with issues in South Africa? Um, and I find that, you know, there is no real difference actually between what we're taught here at undergrad and what you may find like in the US. In fact, a lot of our textbooks are written in the US, right? Mm -hmm. And then we just adapted for our South African context. But we do need different ways of dealing with our very unique problems. And I think that they, that people don't have solutions for our very unique problems. So people have solutions that work elsewhere, but people don't have ideas that can work here. And if you do find people who have ideas that could work here, you know, it often comes across as like very radical because we hardly ever hear those mm. things. Um, like I remember there was this one webinar we had at the school um, and it had a researcher from the Institute of Economic Justice um, on, I can't remember her name now, um, and just, you know, the type of stuff that she said was like, you know, like it makes so much sense, but I mean, it's so far from <laughs> what we are doing, you know, so it seems like such a radical idea when those types of things should actually be mainstream um, in South Africa, you know, um, and we're not thinking about those things and also the way that our policymakers are putting together the teams, you know, to sort yeah. of give them insight on those things, you know, I just went back again today to the President's Economic Advisory Council, you know, who's supposed to advise the President on, you know, poverty and inequality and unemployment. And I mean, I don't need to tell you that, like, women, for instance, are the most afflicted by those problems, right? And yet mm -hmm. he doesn't have, like, a single gender economist on that panel. So now I ask you, you know, what are people going <laughs> to tell him to do? And who are those things going to work for? So I think that it's not just about... It's not just about what is being said, it's also about who is saying those things. Um, and I think there's also this um, series on Netflix, The Inside Job, you know, where this guy basically, there's a part of the series where he explains how 
you know, a lot of these academics who worked as consultants, um, you know, during the crisis and even before it, um, you know, who work as consultants and advise government, um, a lot of them actually have conflicts of interest, right? Because they have their own interests. So they are going to advise one way or the other that works for them as well. Um, I mean, I think about, you know, we have such a huge um, youth unemployment cohort, right? Mm. Or unemployed youth cohort, rather. Um, and then we think about the government as it's sort of us, like Barack Obama says, it's us making decisions together, right? So now yeah. I ask you, is there someone in the ANC who, ANC as an example, I could use DA or EFF as well. Is there someone in the ANC's youth league, for instance, you know, who can, you know, push the agenda of the unemployed youth? Or are mm. the people in the youth look so far removed because they are actually part of the elite, right? That they cannot possibly fathom, you know, what an unemployed youth on the ground is going through. So I, I think there's just like this disconnect between, you know, the people who are making the decisions and the people who are actually being affected by the decisions. And perhaps that's a bigger problem that we have in the world. You know, perhaps it's not necessarily a South African problem. Um, but I mean, I don't know. How do you how do you get people on the ground? You know, to um, to you know filter up their problems through government. I suppose that would be you know a governance question mm -hmm. or a political science question. Um, but I mean, all those things like like go together. Um, yeah, but uh, I think you, I, I love the angle you use about include as, as in because I think look, uh, I'll be. I think we can be quite honest about is that sometimes when people make the argument for inclusion, I always tend to find that, look, you know, it's normally like a five minute or even a three minute snippet. And it's like jargon. So like you say, it'll be inclusion transformation. But I like the way you put it to say, listen, if you literally think about it in terms of when, because I used to work in government, when you get given a policy, you literally are trusting that the person who's given it to you has done a 360 view. And you're right in saying, if you've never considered, like uh, I think in some of your work, you look at the issues of the informal sector. If you, a lot of I can always, it always baffles me a bit that we never really spend, you know, invest enough time to say, look, what does the informal sector look like and what can we actually reap from it? And you're right in saying it is maybe an inclusionary thing. And that's why maybe I'm always a bit confused by, because in theory, I mean, if you, well, if you follow the MIT School of Thought with economics that, listen, it all goes down to a quantitative and numbers do not lie type of thing, then the numbers should be telling us that, listen, if you don't include, like as you're saying, maybe a gender economics, if you don't include the formal sector in your planning for the future, you are literally leaving behind a, a huge cohort of, like you say, not just numbers, but actual living and human breathing people. And that's why I think I've never quite understood how economics in South Africa works. Because if you look, I've had the privilege of living in Germany and Australia. They're, literally, the way they, they speak to their problems I know Germany will, they'll come here with their experts and say X and Y, but when they're among themselves and you listen with that very hard language of theirs, they speak in economics, which works for them. So I've never quite understood why, even our schools, I mean, look, you can, we can segment them. I don't think it's wrong to say, listen, we all know that there's your, do you, do you want to say Ivy League? That's the wrong way of looking at it. Eh? But it's, but you know what I mean? There are your universities where by virtue of the rankings, right? If you look at, their economics. I mean, we all know UCT is very brilliant and strong in certain aspects. This is very strong. But I think maybe probably UJ is a bit, one of, probably one of the few that's actually looking at the informal sector. And if you look at women in economics, 
like you said, you would think it's a normal thing to look at because, I mean, South Africa is South Africa. But you don't really get, a, like you said, a whole institution dedicated towards saying, oh, by the way, why is it that women find it hard to get financing for work? So I've, I've never quite understood. Is it, does it start, is the problem starting at the university level or is it the fact that industry doesn't really value these things? Because for me, it's always like there's a disjunction. Because really, you can't literally live from getting your gra- your graduate economics degree, postgraduate, you go between VITS, UCT, maybe do a UKZN, maybe do a Rhodes. You go to the banking sector and maybe you feel that the heart calls you to go to government, but you've never really interacted with what I term South African problems. So how do you square the, how do you square it there? I've never quite understood that one. Yeah, I think it's also like about interest, right? And this is why like diversity is, is important. Um, Cause I think, and you'll know this, that we do research that speaks to our hearts, right? Yeah. Um, I think there's this sort of notion, you know, that researchers are objective, you know, and, you know, we look at the literature and, we analyze the literature as objective beings and, you know, then we give our our educated opinion. Um, But actually we also give what we feel about the particular issue. Um, Mm -hmm. And just a side note, so there's actually this thing in feminist economics um, where Madeleine Power in one of her papers, she talks about um, making value judgments. So you would have heard that, you know, economics works only with normative statements. Um, And she basically says that you have to make value judgments because if you don't do those things up front, then they are implicit. So um, if you think, for instance, about our social security framework, um, you know, basically what we're saying to people in terms of our social security framework is that you have to work, right? Because if you're not a pensioner and you're not a child and you're not disabled, you should work. That's why we don't give you a grant, right? Um, This is despite the fact that we have a very high unemployment rate. So that is the value judgment in that sort of policy. So if we don't say upfront that we're saying that working for a wage is the gold standard, then that thing becomes implicit. Um, And then it also becomes about what we value, just like you said. So what does society value, right? Society values people who are productive. You know, society values people who can bring something to the table. So what does an unemployed youth bring? I mean, I don't know any unemployed youths who just sit around the house doing nothing. You know, I'm sure you also know some unemployed youths. These people are busy, right? They're trying different things. They're doing stuff around the house. You know, they may be trying to start a business. Like, people are productive, but because they are not productive in a way that is easy to measure, we sort of count them as as unproductive. So, um, in terms of, let me come back to your question. Just mm-hmm. no, 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 you were, you were going in the right direction to say why, why this obvious problem which you've defined, why is it not coming yes. out in economic policy and the like? Yeah. Yes. So coming back to where I was going, um, I do this in class. That's why my students always laugh at me. So <laughs> in terms of coming back to we do research that speaks to our interest, um, you know, if you go look at the statistics, like you know, the percentage of female economists and even female economic academics um it's very small right especially the higher up you go um you know there are very few female professors who are economists or the proportion at least is very low this is not just a south african problem it's also um a problem um in other parts of the world um and if we think about 
you know, the fact that people are going to do research which interests them, and then you have groups which are underrepresented in certain disciplines, then it means that only certain areas of those disciplines are going to get attention. Um, mm. So then it means, you know, the other economics issues which maybe affect women, maybe then we call those, we hoi them with the sociologist, you know, or we throw them to the development studies people. Um, but in actual fact, you know, those things should be part of the mainstream economic debate. Um, mm. Because on the President's Advisory Council, you don't have any sociologists, despite the fact that there are many sociologists who do work on, on labor markets, um, but looking specifically at what's happening to youth in the labor market and looking specifically at what's happening to women mm. in the labor market. So, I mean, you'll see that there are a lot of people there, you know, I'm picking on them now and we have a lot of colleagues there, no shame <laughs> for them. Um, no but, you know, there are, <laughs> there are a lot of people there who do macroeconomic modeling, you know, but the fact is like, our population is so diverse, you know, there's such large inequalities in the labor market, in our society, that you can't just take that macro view on issues. You have to look at what's happening at the microeconomic level as well, you know. So, and I, I don't just mean, you know, looking at industrial development and what's happening within industries, what's happening mm -hmm. in certain occupation groups, you know, what's happening in the informal sector, what's happening in the informal sector where people are selling clothes specifically what's happening in the informal sector where people are selling tomatoes specifically do the people who sell clothes have the same issues as the people who are selling tomatoes or do we need to have different solutions to the problems that they are experiencing so if we do this macroeconomic blanket thing i mean it's easy right so we can say oh look yeah. this is what the macroeconomic model is showing let's do a policy that works for everyone but if you have an economy where people are so people live so far from one another i mean i don't know like you know like where you come from necessarily but i for instance cannot fathom what it must be like you know to you know wake up in a shack in the morning and open the door and you know have sewage running through my front door and then walking to school for like two kilometers i don't know what that's like you know, but if mm. we're going to have a macroeconomic policy that's supposed to work for me and the person who lives like that, then, you know, like, where are we going um, with our solutions? No, no, actually, I love that word because it's speaking to the heart of the, the heart of the issue. Again, for those of you that just joined in, welcome to the TK show. And we have, as they say, Professor Mackett here, who is just really, I think, you know, I think you're cutting to the heart of it because I think as you were just describing that vivid reality of where someone lives vis-a-vis -vis the utilities and what they have and how policy is answering that actually made me think we actually don't have a department of info on the informal economy there's no such thing in government that we actually don't have such and you're right and actually maybe if one has to yeah i guess maybe play their cards a bit is you know because I, I i come from local government that's why i used to i used to work in local government then i then I don't know how you'll see me now. I used to be one of those consultants you speak of. We used to do a lot of work uh, here and there. But the question is always, uh, and, and again, having, I'm sure as you've also seen it as not just literature, but is there something we can readily do? As in, maybe, let me put it to you in, in, this, in this question to say, literature kind of tells us, and even history tells us that, look, unfortunately, and, and I say it's unfortunately, that the way you get people into work, and here we're speaking of your formal you know, your, 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 what's termed it, your, your bricks and mortar type of work is this thing called industrial policy. But I don't know how you feel, because I think this is where I wanted to maybe really gauge your mind in it, is to say, 
would you then be opposed to an idea which says, listen, we've seen how the East Asian countries have done it, which is to say, you literally might have to say, listen, Nike, Adidas, come into the Northern Cape, set up your factory as you see fit. We're going to relax. And you know the way, the way this is going. We're going to relax certain things such as minimum wage. We're going to relax certain things about hiring and firing. So, because for me, that, that's all, because I was one of those youths that was unemployed. And because I, just to give a snippet, my first job in local government, I volunteered. I literally walked into the municipality, told them, look, I know you're going to tell me you don't hire graduates. Fine. I don't, I don't care. Just let me work so that I can gain experience. And uh, then whatever happened, happened, right? So I'm always one of those people who's like, yes, it might be an antidote. And I'm, I'm not saying this is how everybody should do it. But what's your feeling about that? That look, we, for us to really move, like, like you said, that person that lives in the shack, is it good that we just give them the option to say, listen, there's X company or B company who's willing to take you on, but understand that they might not give you what we ideally love as a minimum wage? Or just your thinking on that a bit. Yeah, I think that's the, I like to use, um, you know, the East Asian countries in my class because it always makes for an interesting debate. And this is where the politics and the economics meet, mm -hmm. right? So what you're basically talking about is, you know, relaxing the democracy. <laughs> <laughs> For less, I think less you, of a better you, term. You put, it in a, you put it in a nicer way. Yes, I never thought about it like that, but you can say relaxing the, the democracy. I like that. I'll use that one if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, so there's this video that I show my students, you know, where it basically shows, you know, the point where South Korea was, you know, everyone was essentially dying of famine. And then, you know, they got this. Do they have a president or do they have an emperor? Why do I think now that they have an emperor? Uh, I think it's a, pre a president. I think now it's a president because I remember she, she, there's a he now, yeah. Yeah. So then they get this person who decides this is the way we're going. And then everyone just goes along, you know, because everyone's hungry, right? People are dying of hunger. Mm -hmm. So people don't care for their human rights. They just want to eat. Um, and, you know, I think that... I do think that democracy is a Western concept, um, although I don't want to get into that because I'm not a political scientist. <laughs> but I do think their democracy itself needs to be questioned. Um, but I also think that just as authoritarianism comes with certain costs to society, right? So maybe it means there's a curfew like we had now in COVID because remember a lot of people were... Um, comparing the situation to, you know, mm -hmm. authoritarian regimes, right? So there's a curfew. You can only buy alcohol at this time. This is what some countries have, right? But then maybe people have jobs, you know, people are living fine because, you know, the rules are set. We all follow the rules. And it means that everyone gets their piece of the pie. But democracy also has its cost. And I think America is a good example of the bad things if I can call it that, that comes with a democracy. So how much freedom is too much freedom, right? Mm -hmm. And at what cost are we getting our freedom? Um, so no, I'm not saying that, you know, we need to convert to an authority, authoritarian <laughs> state. Um, but I do think that, you know, our democracy has just, it's allowed for just a lot of voices to come into you know, the the political realm. Um, and that's a good thing.
but it's not a good thing if you have like the ANC, for instance, who is fractured, um, where even within the party, people have different interests, because how do you then agree on something? And that's when, you know, the politics takes away from the progress, you know, when, mm. when we can't come to an agreement on something. So um, there's this map that I always show my students of Africa and just how diverse it is, you know, and I actually asked the question, you know, is Africa's diversity costing it? Um, because if you look at the rest of the world, um, populations are more homogenous, right? So yes. in Europe, you see more homogenous populations. In Asia, you see more homogenous populations. But if you have like a small land mass and you have like 10 different cultural groups, you know, who all have their beliefs, their interests, you know, their things that they need, their land, um, how do you get people to come to an agreement on something? And I think that is our our problem right now um and even within our opposition parties you know often we find that people are not disagreeing with something because there really is an intellectual case to be made for disagreement but because we are there to disagree um i just think that there's been like this um this regression in debate and it's not just in politics i've started seeing it in in academia as well you know where where people will engage in seminars um and instead of arguing ideas um you know we start arguing with each other so we're playing the ball ah the man and not the ball you know as they say um so yeah i do think that that is the cost of a democracy is that mm -hmm. every voice matters um but i also think that you know, as people, we also need to be aware of, you know, where we sit in society. So, for instance, if we're going to talk about, you know, struggling academics, if we're going to call ourselves struggling academics in South Africa, um, then really, like, we are completely out of touch, you know, with what is mm -hmm. happening yeah. in the in the country, right? And if I'm calling myself a struggling academic and I want to make sure that I protect my little piece of land and I protect my salary so I don't want the tax <laughs> increase, you know, even though the tax increase could go like a small way, you know, to help, you know, someone who maybe has nothing. Um, I think that, like, we're just, like, missing, you know, that sort of bigger picture. Um, mm -hmm. And it's also because we don't have leaders, you know, who, who can show us that bigger picture because the leaders are themselves trying to, you know, the, people are stealing from the poor, you know, like with no shame. So if you have mm -hmm. someone who's like taking social grant money, um, you know, to buy a BMW, like no conscience whatsoever, then, I mean, how do you expect, you know, the very wealthy in our country to say, you know what, I can give my whatever, 20% of my gross salary, because at least I know that 20% is going to go towards, you know, it's going to go towards some guy, you know, being able to start his own business, or it's going to go to someone, you know, who at least has money to print a CV and has tax, tax to get to a, a interview. Um, but I mean, if you have, if you have someone stealing that CV printing money, you know, to buy a BMW, then I think we've just, like, just morally, you know, like we've become completely bankrupt. And I think, you know, all of us just need to like reflect a bit, um, you know, on where we are, even the middle class. Um, yes, I think, you know, there is a part of the middle class who may be struggling, maybe people who have large households. Um, but I also suspect, suspect, I don't know. I also mm -hmm. suspect that a lot of people are just living above their means, you know, because that's just how materialistic we've become as a society. Um, you know, so if we're always trying to get bigger houses, bigger cars, more of everything, 
then it means I don't have perspective in terms of, you know, the other person who doesn't have. And, you know, the government mm. could be taking a little bit more from me to give to the other person. But also, if the government's taking for itself, then, I mean, no, I'll the government must leave my money. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, there are, there are many factors, but I think it's also about just, you know, people being able to come to an agreement, you know, and having leaders who can sort of galvanize people around a common vision. Um, but of course, like um, most of our political parties are morally bankrupt. So I don't know who's going who's gonna to do that for us. But I think you, you answered in a very interesting way because one might, uh, it goes back to, not, it's not roles, but I think it goes back to what you're saying. It's almost like we don't have a social contract in South Africa, which is Leviathan. I think that's the Hobbes. I might not remember much from political science, but I always remember the Leviathan. But what you're saying speaks like it speaks to maybe we've never actually, like you said, we've never done the costing of a social contract in South Africa as it relates to the economy, which is to say, look, like I, I, I don't have a problem paying tax. But like I said, my issue is when you see your tax going to other means, then you start to look at your visit your friends that are CAs to say, can you make magic sort of happen here? You know, make make magic happen. And it's actually, yeah, because I think East Asian communities sort of have that social contract. Uh, I remember speaking to one ambassador from China, you know, he explained that, listen, he said democracy is very easy because at the end of the day, like you said, there is no cost outside of being voted out. He says in China, we don't sleep because the cost, they, these people will kill us if we do not basically give them economic development. So I was like, which one, who, was, who sleeps easier, President Sarah Ramaphosa or, Pres, or Premier Xi in China? Because one knows that if this thing falls apart, there's a whole billion people on you. But, but I think, look, it's, now, I think probably just maybe returning to your work a bit, because I think there's an article you put, the effects of COVID-19 on women in South Africa, an analysis of using social provisioning framework, very big English words, which I'm sure you'll break us down into. But I think I ran into something on TV, which was actually explaining, and I think even Brookings put that up to say COVID-19's effect on working women has actually been quite negative. I think there's high levels of depression. The, it's also exposed, like you said, the informal sector when you just do a blanket lockdown, how are these women who are working in the informal sector supposed to actually get the work done? How, if from your work, specifically, look, when you've looked at issues such as inclusion, when you've looked at issues such as the micro microeconomics and issues of decent work, has COVID maybe almost like kind of shown how right your work is? Or, yeah, if you, if you get my drift of saying, I don't want to say COVID has been like, oh my word, it's a, it's a way of propelling and actually advocating what you're doing but how do you view it though because for me COVID seems to have really highlighted how wrong we've been about a lot of things mm, yeah absolutely I agree with that um and I mean I do say that in the article you know like COVID has just sort of like opened up all these issues that people have had so I mean take for instance the social distancing um, you might remember that there were a lot of townships in which people weren't social distancing. And then we had the SANDF, you know, going through the streets of the townships, you know, essentially getting people to go back in their houses. But the fact of the matter is people don't have space because people are living on top mm -hmm. of one another. And yeah. people have been living on top of one another. And now people yeah. saw it because people had to social distance and they couldn't. So, yeah. I mean, that's just one example, you know, but they are like so many things um you know where we see where COVID has actually you know given people these aha moments oh my goodness okay there's this thing that's been here this whole time 
it's only now that we see it, you know, because, um, you know, it's sort of been exposed by this crisis. Yeah, because specifically, maybe I'm just highlighting the issue of, because one thing COVID did make me think, because look, again, you know, I, I'm very open to say for me, I, I, I like what I am. I like being a guy. It's very good being a guy. But having to stay with the child for a very long time, you're like, oh, my word. The only thing that I always tell my wife is, how do single mothers do it? Because, you know, because you're like, oh my, literally, so, because when you think about it, I mean, the, a child is, if we speak about irrationality, well, there's rationality in their little minds, you know, which is they want love, they want love, they want you to be there, which is what we should all be doing. But it's, um, it, I was like, how does a, a single mother, let's say a child gets up at six, you don't know when they're going to sleep because you, you just have to be there. She has to get ready for work. She has to perform at work. She has to come back. If she's privileged enough to have finances where she can get a nanny, it's fine. If not, she, you know, there's always means and ways. So it really has made me think that our architecture for how we handle single, I don't even like the term single-headed household because it, it's, it sounds so wrong because I think there's supposed to be some safety net around there. But just on that issue, I mean, how do we get around there? Because I think we should maybe be thinking a bit more dearly and clearly about this issue of a pair, I mean, it's it, predominantly this woman, we can't get away from it, who have are raising these kids by, by themselves. Hopefully the males are there to do their part, not just the sperm donors, but just your thinking around it as to any ideas, or do you think maybe what big ideas can we throw around specifically on this issue? Yeah, like, I don't have the answers, um, but I mm -hmm. agree with you. I have no idea how, you know, like a single mother would survive just survive yeah. um but i do think there's you know it's a question of you know community i think um and of course it's also a question of government um so there are certain areas where government can make rules you know make policy and say this is how we are formally going to help everyone but then there's also community um and again it goes to you know what are people's perceptions of the government um and i mean the gcro has very interesting few questions in there you know where they ask you know what do you think is government's responsibility you know creating jobs um you know providing housing i mean that's that's a really interesting question here you know where you can sort of see you know how people think about the government um and how people think about it differently you know because even within economists, some people would say, you know, government is supposed to create jobs. Another person might say, you know, government is just supposed to create a conducive environment, yeah. you know, for jobs. Um, but again, it's again coming to an agreement about what is the role of government. Um, and once we know what the role of government is, we then know what is our role as the community. So, um, and this would be a broader governance question right which yeah. is of interest to us in our school is is how do all these little parts work together so i think like a lot of people have done um studies now on co community policing forums right um yeah. where they show how do these people operate in relation to the police um you know and that's sort of where you see um you know police and communities working together you know to govern govern their communities um but i think the same thing applies when it comes to this reproductive labor, when it comes to raising children, who's responsible for children. Um, I do think that, you know, like in the townships where our parents used to grow up, that dynamic was a bit different, right? So it was a bit yeah. more, 
communal um you know so we'd know that you know there's a neighbor so if yeah. my mother goes i don't have to worry because the neighbor's there or my mother will ask the neighbor can this person come over or whatever and i think we've also having moved into the suburbs um we've moved to a more sort of individualistic way of living right so now i want to hide from my neighbor my, my, my walls are high <laughs> right so i don't yeah, want them to see yeah i don't want them to see what's going on you know um so I think that is like a big part of it is how we make community. Um, and it's a very difficult question because mm -hmm. it's also about what do we want community to be, right? So is it that I can tell my neighbor, I want to leave my child with you? Is it that I just want to be able to borrow a, a cup of sugar? And how do we come to an agreement on that? Um, and so if things then become systemic. So if you then find that it's women who look after the children and therefore, you know, they are being disadvantaged in other areas like the labor market, then we maybe say, okay, government step mm -hmm. in. But what does government do? Does government need to set up facilities where, um, where women can leave their children? Or does government mandate companies to have daycare centers so that women can, um, you know, leave mm -hmm. their children there like when that. they go to work? So, you know, like there are all these different dynamics and I mean, there's nothing stopping us as individuals from creating the type of communities we want, right? So if I'm a CEO of a company, there's nothing stopping me from, um, you know, setting up a daycare um, or asking my employees, is that something you guys would like? Um, I like this example of Cheryl Sandberg um, from Facebook. She, in her one book, Lean In, she speaks about, um, you know, how she was pregnant. Um, and at that stage, she was an executive. Um, she was pregnant and she was late for a meeting, you know, she got to work late and she had to park at the back, you know, and then she had to sort of like waddle through the, the parking, <laughs> you know, and like that's the first time she thought, oh my goodness, why is there no parking space for, you know, women who are pregnant, you know, they should be able to park close to the door, just like people in wheelchairs or whatever. Um, And she actually then instituted a policy where they created parkings for pregnant women. Um, And then she thought, you know, they there's been many women before, you know, who were pregnant, who probably had the same issue. It's just they weren't executive, so they couldn't institute mm, the parking true. policy. So I think it also just, you know, just more than community, it's also just about diversity in the places where we make decisions, um, you know, so that we are able to, so that we are able to address those different things. You know, so we are able to address those things in our companies. We are able to address those things in our communities. We are able to address those things um, in government. Um, but to do that, you need to have people who have those very diverse um, experiences. But yeah, that is a very complex question. Complex question. I add, I don't have the answers, um, but I do think it's about um, community building. No, I think you've, I think you've answered it well because, because I think it, it touches on, and I think maybe throughout our whole discussion, I think that's what you always touch on is. Is this issue of the, the which I think we don't do enough in South Africa. I think people go to Rainbow Nation, which is always very confusing because I never find my pigmentation in the rainbow. But <laughs> but but it's always an issue of we we've never had the discussion about uh, you know what is our social contract. What you what you're saying is what do I need to give up 
or if I give up, what will I get back from government and also the private sector? But I also like the point you just made now about Facebook, because which is something I'm sure COVID has really exposed. And it's coming to South Africa, and I think your work touches on it. It's called the gig economy, right? I think, mm. for lack of a better word, people for for those that like the fundi word for are, but I think the proper term is the gig economy. Yeah. How do you think that? That I mean, we've already we already have the problems we have, so you can just now imagine. For for like your work such as yours, when you look at the, the decent work, well, the ideal, which you, you said is is a bit flawed, but we work with what's there. How do you think now this? Because I mean, some some argue that listen, COVID has simply accelerated where we were going, and if you look at how the gig economy has played out in the UK, with is it I think is it uh, these companies, you know, you take a their versions of the take a lots, their versions of Uber Eats, where people. I think you basically work, um, it's beyond minimum, it's beyond minimum. How do you think that's going to play out in a country like South Africa where, like you said, we've got a huge youth problem when it comes to unemployment. We've got a huge inequality issue of and by itself. Now you bring in this gig economy, which COVID has accelerated. Yeah, not looking for an answer, but looking for, do you think we're thinking enough about, because I mean, at the end of the day, when people ask me what my job, I'm saying I'm a professional thinker, that's, in theory, that's what we do. We're professional yeah. thinkers. Do you think from our end, we're thinking enough about that? Or is it still, like you say, it's easier just to run a model and say, yeah, uh, the model says GDP 2.2 and then the like. Yeah, I think it's interesting, you know, in South Africa, given like the important contribution that unions have made traditionally, right? Um, and I, I do think it's already here, right? So we see the Ubers, we see Sweep South. Um, but decent work is also about, and I think it should be about, um, you know, what workers need. So it's sort of about equalizing the playing field between government business and workers. That's how I see decent work anyway. And so if you do that, it becomes a little bit complex because then it means that what's decent to you might not be decent to me. So maybe, um, you don't mind working long hours for more pay but I need to work fewer hours because I have a child at home. So I can't work long hours, but I need to find a way to, I don't know, balance having less pay with working fewer hours, you know? Um, so it's about, you know, finding that middle ground for people. But I do think that, you know, the gig economy also presents new opportunities that weren't there before. Um, so if you think about people on Sweep South, um, you know, the, the platform for domestic workers, um, you know, there might be people on there who may have been going from door to door, you know, to try and find work who may not be able to do that. But if they register on the platform, you know, they can then be like matched easy. I suppose it's like a dating app, right? So instead of having to go to a bar, you know, you can just log onto your app and find someone without going all the way. Um, but I mean, it's, it's essentially like the same thing. And I, I do think there's also a bit of, um, how do you say people have greater control, you know, over when they work, um, what type of work they want to do, right? So if you're on Sweep South and you don't want to work on Fridays, you know, you can make yourself unavailable for, for Fridays. Of course, that comes at the cost of losing income mm. um, on that day. So, I mean, there's flexibility. So there's this, um, it's flex security, um, one of the flex authors security. that I cite called it. So they, they talk about, you know, finding the, that middle ground between giving workers flexibility, but also giving them security. Um, so if someone is in a full-time job and they have that nice secure contract, 
um but then you know they can't even go out for lunch hour and you know go stand <laughs> yeah. in a queue at home affairs for instance and that's also an issue in fact they I, I read a paper the other day of someone that's not in our country it's in another country um where they actually um ran a model on waiting times so you know things that people wait for so you wait for transport you wait for this you know you wait in the line at the clinic you know where someone mm -hmm. else might just walk into the doctor's office you're waiting for the taxi someone else just jumps in their car and they show how you know the difference in the waiting times between high income earners and low income earners yes, you know and awesome. low income earners spend so much of their time just waiting for stuff every day whereas high income earners you know a very small proportion of the day you know they spend um waiting for stuff but there's also you know that sort of you know if someone can't go to do something during the week then they have to go on a saturday you know it's supposed to be their mm -hmm. off day so it's also that like mental and emotional fatigue you know that people experience if they have jobs where they don't have flexibility and i think the the gig economy sort of provides them with that but then you know we don't have that okay we then giving you your pension contribution or we also contributing to uif you know or you know if you're sick um you can get your mm -hmm. sick days and be paid um, you know, in the gig economy, if you're sick and you can't work, then you don't get paid. So it's, it's like a no work, no pay situation. So, yeah, you know, there are all these little arrangements and we do need to take that into account um, because that is going to become more prevalent. Um, and yeah, I think we need to think differently about our social security framework and, you know, how we accommodate workers who work in those types of situations, because yes, there are people who do prefer to work their way that way, but there are also an equal amount of people who have no other choice. So they can't get a job elsewhere. So this is, um, what do they call it? The platform economy also, right? Um, this is mm. a place where they can actually, um, you know, find opportunities. So, yeah. Jeez. I think it, it's fascinating. I think, yeah, you've actually just put it quite well. And, you know, I think very well, because uh, it's things which, and I think this is why we wanted to have you on board because, uh, look, uh, this course that is one of the things we argue is that, listen, when you listen to the news, you don't get what you've heard. Yeah. We, we are still, I'm sure, I'm not sure if we still listen. Okay, look, some of us are big kids because we're on the news. <laughs> but um, but if you just look at the news, yeah. I mean, the economic indicators, right? We're still stuck on, look, yes, the price of oil is important. So we, no one will deny it. But then they show you those green bars, red bars, US dollar, pound, you know, like, and you're like, and I always say this to people, it's actually worse when you listen to vernacular because vernacular news is very poor at giving economic discussion. Now, I always make this, uh, always give this illustration to say, if you listen to the English news, most likely you're going to get an advert on food, the banking, uh, something about the financial services sector. If you listen to vernacular news, yes, you'll get food, but then you're going to get something from Avbob, death. Yeah. There's always death, <laughs> and which makes me think, but how are you then teaching our people about you know, investments in the value of the economy before you're really taking them the first economic policy. I'm sure the majority of black South Africans, I don't care where you are in the Western Cape here, Kailicho here, it's always Avbob or something, which is we're preparing for death, but we never prepare for, you know, the, the life, life, life type of thing. And I always have this yeah. argument with my dad. Uh, yeah, so no, but yeah, so I think, yeah, that's why I said I'm very happy we've had you. And yes, for me, yeah, I mean, so many papers you've spoken about. Uh, don't be surprised uh, if I come through with papers asking you to to publish. But I think, look, for me, the key takeaways, I think, too, which you really have hit on is just maybe the idea that we've never really thought about the social contract in South Africa from an economics perspective, as, as you framed it, to say, 
yes, it's great to have, I like what you call it, it's great to have diversity of views, but democracy has a cost. And I think we've never really had that discussion to say, what does it look like? Because if I say no to minimum wage, Kosatu starts to raise up their hands and the ANC goes berserk, and then obviously another party will be excited. But so I think that's, I think it's something fascinating and I'm hoping, you know, look, we, we can really have you on for just to maybe expand on it. And also, I think just your issue, I think I, I call it forward thinking about how you've been able to tie decent work to issues of the gig economy, because I don't think we think about it in South Africa. Like we, like you said, we, we are very focused on this industrial, you know, industrial IPAP, one IPAP. We're still waiting for all these IPAPs as you touch on it. But like you said, it's here. We can't really get away from it. So from my side, I think you've yeah, you've done it justice, more than what I wanted to maybe discuss. So thank you very much for that. Now we come to the section of the show where we basically ask, you know, like just three things from, from you. One, where do you see yourself in the next five years? Uh, which is, I know it's a long-term thing. Two, what can we look forward to from you? As in, because I think you've, you occupy a very interesting niche research-wise. And I think the last question, one big thing you'd love to see happen if you were made queen or king or president or premier for a day for South Africa, what would you do? So you can answer those questions in any order you want. Sure. Okay. I think I'll start at the beginning. Um, <laughs> um, the next five years, I just happen to be a planner. So I have the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, definitely associate professor. Um, I know I'm only at lecture now, um, but I've done the calculations. It is possible to get there um, <laughs> within, will, will, yeah. within the next five years. Um, of course, you know, like plans also don't always work out. So, I mean, if it doesn't happen in the next five years, that's also okay. Um, but that's definitely where I'm aiming for. Um, the second question was... Uh, it's, it's almost, uh... My future work. Yeah, my work future work. Things, future, things yes. we can look forward to from you. Yes, so um, I have this research grant. You'll know my, my three-year teaching buyout, um, which relates to my PhD. Um, so I'm submitting my PhD soon. Um, and then, of course, I have these um, articles which will come from that. Um, so, yeah, a lot of the articles relate to decent work, but specifically, you know, women's issues in relation to decent work um so that's one area of research that i'm focusing on um and then my other area which i'm very excited about um is about household composition um household composition and labor market outcomes so wow. i have this uh, theory you know that you know because of our social grants people will live wherever there's income Right. Um, so mm -hmm. if you are a single person, you're living in Johannesburg, maybe you're from a rural area um, and you have no income, you can't continue to pay your rent. So you have to move. So where do you go? Back home. Who's back home? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's granny. She's getting a social grant. It's not much, but it's something. Um, so I have this theory that, you know, the household composition that we are currently seeing is also due to labor market outcomes. And of course, people are not getting married anymore. Right. So people are also starting to just live together and people are just not marrying anymore. Um, so we have a large cohort of never married individuals, people who have never married before. <laughs> and then we have a growing cohort of people who are cohabiting. So living together without a formal um, marriage contract. And then of course the proportion of married people is falling um, over time. So I'm sort of looking at, you know, how people are forming their households and how they are 
ask where they are in the labor market, because of course a household is not just about who we love, it's also about how we share our resources. So um, that is something um, interesting Jeez. that I'm looking at. Um, Sounds so like a Nobel I... Prize in economics, that. <laughs> well, that sounds a bit extreme. Um, but yeah, I think it'll be interesting to look at and it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. Um, that's also something that I'm maybe working on for the next two years. Um, and then, goodness me, the last question was about one day being present. You know, I used to do pageantry and this used to be a question that came up a lot. Um, <laughs> it's a very cheesy question. It's, it's, it's similar to a world peace answer type well, of question. They say beautiful people change the world, apparently. <laughs> well, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> um, but yeah, what would I change? Um, you know, I think I know that change doesn't happen overnight, so one day wouldn't be enough. Um, but maybe I would change, goodness me, goodness me, what would I change? Now you know why they like asking that question. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> because it's a, it's a really tricky question. Mm. Um, I think I would, I don't know, uh, if there's any policy that I could change. I, I don't think policies matter that much in the bigger scheme of things. I think it's more what we do day to day that matters. So I wouldn't mm. change anything in relation to policy. That would be a very useless waste of a very powerful day. Um, mm. I don't know, maybe I would just, I would, I would implement something that has to be done over a longer period of time. That's what I would do. So maybe I would look at our major infrastructure, um, yeah. infrastructure things. I don't know what they call in South Africa. So water and electricity, um, sewage. Um, I just get the feeling that, you know, like how governments used to be like invisible, you know, in the back of the mind you know we don't see yeah. them you know we just open the tap the water's there we we click the switch the light is there yeah. you know government was invisible because those things were working um and now they're like yeah you know i always say like they need to be like a a wedding photographer you know like they need to be there and capture the day but we don't want to see them actually you know they're not part of the day so that's, that's, nice how, <laughs> that's how i see government you know, and I feel like government has become like too visible because they've become dysfunctional um, and things are not working. Um, so maybe I would implement a order um, that says, you know, all of these things must be maintained over the next month or so, whatever money needs to go to renewing and maintaining the infrastructure. Just so you know, government can go back to being invisible because really like we don't need to be seeing them. And we are seeing them too much in the potholes, in the lights that are off, you know, mm. um, in the sewage that's running down the road. So, yeah. Well, doctor, I'll say, Odile Mackett, <laughs> you, you can tell you really do think like a kid almost the way you put it down to price. It. No, it was actually quite wonderful. Thank you so utterly much for actually giving us, uh, I know you're quite busy. You're the, I just said, what, I think more than a moment of your time. And also, I think, look, uh, the way you've done, like I said, for me, it has been an enlightening conversation because it, it's got me to think, you know, I see the conversation we've had in three ways. One, I think you've given us a great synopsis of almost like the past of economics, as in its, its failures, the way it's gone wrong. But you've also been able to marry the politics of it, which is not a conversation which is not always held well in South Africa, because I think it's, mm -hmm. for some reason, you know, the, these countries where we get economics from, they're great at having this conversation. We... I think we've yet to graduate in our universities and just 
life in general to have this marriage of politics and economics. And I also think, look, I'll, I'll hang on my hat on the issue you've raised about perhaps the issues that we don't have a social contract. And the sad thing about contracts is if you if you don't see yourself in it, you, you become a very disruptive force. Because I think of majorities, you've said a lot of young people, rural, because I think we'll possibly if we expand it to rural and township people. And even look, I always tell people if you look at even Cape Town, as beautiful as Cape Town is, if you look at the Cape Cullis situation, it, it speaks to people not having, a, you don't see yourself in this contract. And I think it's an idea, I think you, you'll probably do very well in, in the future. And you've also given us an idea about not just the gig economy, which is the future, but what we can look forward from you. So it's almost, you've given us almost like a 360 view of just beyond just economics. So I think uh, that's what life is. It goes beyond just what you, as you said, I can earn a very great salary at the World Bank, which I'm still praying for. But you can, at the end of the day, there's, I'm sure if you've traveled, there's nothing worse than coming home and seeing that, listen, you don't just want to be the one who's doing well. You want to see people around you doing well to their full potential, whatever that potential is. So Ordeal, Maket, thank you so much for your time. We, I have enjoyed the conversation. I trust we haven't uh, bored you too much on the conversation. And we look forward to just having more discussions like this with you. And we wish you all the best with your work. And yeah, God bless. Yeah. Thank you, Tika. I really appreciate it. It's, it's pretty interesting. You know, sometimes you also get some answers out of yourself when you talk about these things. So yes, I definitely enjoyed it. And yeah, looking forward to conversations in the future and those publications that we're going to co-author of course yeah. of course of course of course we, we need we need we need nrf we need nrf ratings apparently i need them i need them <laughs> we do yes we do <laughs> all right no no let me just uh say thank you and i'll just stop the recording